Good morning. It's nice to see us gathered together physically. And uh, thank God for our deacon, Aaron, to lead us a long, responsive reading, which is why I decided to cut short the Bible passage to just two verses for him. <laughs> Before we begin, shall we ask go to God in prayer? Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you each time when we can open up your word. Because where else can we find life except through your word? So may your word speak to us, breathe new life into our souls, and to refresh us so they can see your grace and love you again. We ask all these in Jesus' name. So about 13 years ago, in the month of November, my wife Esther and I traveled to a less known country in Southeast Asia. They call it the Lao Demo People's Democratic Republic, or Laos for short. But if you're George Bush, it's pronounced as Laos. So this trip was undertaken as part of our Bible College Studies on Missions. It's the best module ever. It's the eating and traveling module. And we get to spend one month in another country to survey the country and to understand it. So on the evening of 29th November 2008, we arrived at a very, very small town called Muangxing. It's set at the border between Laos, Myanmar, and China. And so we booked into a very small guest house and thankful for the shelter because it was getting cold at this time of the year. But the water pressure was uneven. So showering under the water pressure was a risky business. Because sometimes the water switched from boiling hot and in an instant to freezing cold. So I felt like I was meepok, you know? You are put in boiling water, then cold water, then boiling water. You get the point, right? Yeah. And the next morning, we woke up. It was very misty. So Esther and I decided to take a walk around the town. And the streets, they were really bustling with energy very early. So everyone seemed to be moving towards a certain direction. And every motorcycle was loaded with hay and straws. It was a very strange sight. We can the first picture here. This is how it looked like. And so we saw these motorcycles and the crowd and decided to follow them. And a few moments later, we arrived at a scene. The next picture. So we saw a large crowd working furiously with their hands, stripping branches and bamboo stems, making them into a structure. And the crowd was so big in this very small town, so it seemed to us that everyone in the village was mobilized. And then, obviously, they were building something and the hands were very fast, very skilled, and everybody collaborated in silence. And after they built the structures, they used the straws that they carried on the bicycles and hay to cover them. And that's what they do. And this is the end result of their labor. They look like little straw huts. And all these took place in the courtyard of a temple in that town. So we asked around, very confused, what are you guys doing? We asked in simple English, with hand gestures, and from what we could understand, they were building straw huts for monks to spend the cold winter meditating in these little huts. So the whole village gathered to help the monks to go further along in their quest to transcend the world, to go beyond this ordinary life, or what we can say, to touch the sacred space, to catch a glimpse of heaven, so to speak. So I left the place feeling confused, but at the same time feeling very moved. Not that I agree with the theology, the perspectives of life, but moved because it's quite an experience to see a whole village mobilized for a common task. 
You see, in Singapore, we hardly do manual activities together. And so this whole experience left me with more questions than answers. So what would be our Christian response to such a communal activity? What does the Bible have to say about this? And if this village were to receive the gospel, how then would they react and how can the culture change? And so in today's Bible passage, the ancient Israel was also involved in a communal building project. And to understand this, we need to look at the story so far. So very briefly, we're going through this for a few times, but let me summarize again. God rescued the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, brought them to the wilderness to worship him, to become a nation of Israel. And at the start of the worship, God appeared before them at the top of a mountain as a cloud. His presence was there. And then he gave their leader Moses detailed instructions how to build a tabernacle, a tent-like structure on the ground. And so then the cloud of God, his presence, would descend from the mountain, Mount Sinai, and then at the bottom of the mountain, it would be there at the tabernacle, showing that God's presence was with Israel, his people. And because the people were on the way to the promised land, this tabernacle must be designed to be portable. And then the people could carry with the tabernacle and travel with it, and be assured that wherever they went, God was always in their midst. So Moses called the people together and gave them instructions to build the tabernacle, what we call the communal building project. And we see this in Exodus 35 verse 1. Allow me to read for you. Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, These are the things the Lord had commanded you to do. For six days, work is to be done. But the seventh day shall be a holy day, a day of Sabbath, rest to the Lord. Whoever does work on it is to be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So the first glance will be very puzzled. Why did God mention the Sabbath? Why was God commanding Israel to rest just when they were about to work to build the tabernacle? In fact, the command was so serious that they could not even light a fire on the Sabbath day. See, the modern day equivalent will be saying that you're not allowed to turn on your Wi-Fi router. You see, because with no Wi-Fi, you can't work. In those days, with no fire, you can't cook, you can't work. So why then did God bundle his instructions to work with his instructions to rest? So in verse 2, we see that when we look at the Sabbath, God is saying that he made the entire universe in six days, and he set aside the seventh day where he invites he invites his creation to enter into his rest, to enter into his presence, to enjoy fellowship with him. Sabbath is sacred time with God. So if Israel refused to spend time with God, refused to rest on the Sabbath, the people are saying that they're rejecting God's invitation to rest with him, to party with him. So when you reject God, the source of life, you are choosing death. But when Israel observed the Sabbath, they were choosing God and life. And this is expressed one day every week, set apart, which means holy, sacred, to remind them they are God's people. And so corresponding to this sacred time, there's also a sacred space. So a corner in the universe where God can be with mankind again. Because in the beginning, at the Garden of Eden, 
Adam and Eve, the first humans, they could be with God. But when they gave in a temptation to Satan, when they choose to become their own gods, when they choose death instead of life, then God cannot be with them in the same place anymore. His holiness will destroy us completely the moment God is with us. But yet, the God who created all things, the God who is our Father, He yearns to be with us. So at this point of salvation story, the tabernacle was one way for God to be in the same space with His people without destroying them. Because at the tabernacle, animal sacrifices could be made to pay for our sins. So Exodus 25 verse 8 to 9, it says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So in other words, the tabernacle was a new garden of Eden, a sacred space where the holy God and sinful man could be together and yet we won't be destroyed. So God told Moses to make the tabernacle and its furnishings exactly the way he told them. If not, they will be killed. And this sacred time and this sacred space, it could not be entered by just anyone, but it must be a member of the new humanity. So you can see a diagram over here. You see, there's time and space dimension, but to go into there, there must be a new humanity, and God was creating a new mankind, one that will obey Him. That's a new humanity. That could be in the time and space with God. And how do we see this? So in Genesis, when God created the world, He spoke ten times. The ten words of creation, the next slide, you can see over here. So the creation act is done with ten words. And then later on in Exodus, God undo, no, controls that, his creation, by bringing the ten plagues. And that's how he brought judgments on the sinful world as manifested, demonstrated in Egypt. And then at Mount Sinai, God gave his ten words again to Israel. Ten commandments, what we call. Israel was to obey God's ten words perfectly as he was making them new, a new creation, a new humanity, one that finally obeys God completely. So let me sum it up for you. Here God was making all things new. He was making a sacred time, a sacred space, and a new humanity to enter into His rest. And by obeying the Ten Commandments, Israel was given the great privilege to even be able to be the new humanity. So friends, the tabernacle was not just a small community building project, but it was a small step to renew the entire cosmos. It is the first act of the salvation plan to renew the whole cosmos. This broken world where we live in is full of pain, cancer, disease, suffering. God has a plan to renew it, to make it new again, where there will be no more pain, no more tears, and no more suffering. And this mega plan to recreate the world is through the building of this tiny tabernacle. So with this in mind, then we can move on to the next chapters to see how the tabernacle was constructed. So sometimes, you know, Esther and I were watching a movie at night, we streamed to our TV. Then, as about getting late, she would ask me, how much time left for the show? 
because this was getting late, and the next morning, one of us must wake up at 6 a.m. to bring the kids to school. Anybody's a minister of education here? Anyway, so normally what I'll do is that I take the remote control, pause the movie, look for the timeline of the video, and see how much more time was there left for the film. Now, for example, if it shows 15 minutes, then I'll look at her and declare confidently 10 more minutes. Why? Because the last five minutes will be the film credits, listing the names of all the people involved in the show, which I personally would never be interested to watch. However, I remember once when I was teaching in a polytechnic, we booked a cinema hall for the screening of a Hollywood film, and teachers and students and alumni members were invited. And at the end of the film, the credits started rolling, and everyone in the hall was so excited for the credits. Why? Because we were looking out for the names of our graduated students. Because in that film, some of the special effects scenes, they were made in Singapore by our ex-students. We were all so proud. We were cheering not because of the film, but because of the credits. What was once boring to us was now the most important part of the film. And so it's the same for today's Bible passage. Because although we have seen already the blueprint for the tabernacle, for chapters 25 to 31, and then they repeat it again, chapters 35 to 40. So for us, it's like, oh, it's boring to read again and again the instructions for the tabernacle. Unless, unless we see that this is the highlight of the book. That the building of this sacred space where God and man could be together is the main dish. Comparing to this, the plagues, the ten plagues of Egypt, that was just appetizers. That is why the tabernacle instructions were worth repeating. It's the whole point of bringing them out of Egypt. At the same time, when we study carefully, we'll notice that there are differences between the two accounts, one given earlier and one given later. See, the earlier account, there are instructions, there are blueprints. But here in the second account today, we're looking at the implementation, how the instructions were carried out. And for the implementation portion, it was recorded for us two things. Firstly, how. How Israel obtained the raw materials. And two, who. Who participated in the actual construction of the tabernacle. So first, let's look at the logistics, the how and what? So where did they get the materials to build a tabernacle? 35 verse 4, Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering. In other words, everything that was needed for the construction, they didn't have to go to Taobao or AliExpress to download or to, to, to ship to, to the desert. No, they had it with them. It's always been with them. Because when Israel left Egypt, God gave the Egyptians favorably disposed towards them. Gave them gold, clothing, silver. All that Israel had when they left as they carried out of Egypt was given to them by God. All God asked them was, give me a portion of it, pull it together and build the tabernacle. And all they needed then was a willing heart. Next, they needed skilled manpower to transform these raw materials into a building. Verse 10, All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. And the skill sets needed were varied. 
They ranged from metal work to create the structure of a tent and other metal furnishings. They ranged to woodwork to build the ark and the furniture, leather work to make the covering for the tent, weaving skills to make the curtains and the garments, craftsmanship to carve the cherubim and the flower buds, and skills even to make fragrance oil and incense. I'll be the first to tell you that I had none of these skills. And most probably, neither did most of the Israelites. Because back in Egypt, it was recorded for us, they are mainly slaves making bricks for the Pharaoh. So which is why they needed trainers. But where do you find such multi-talented trainers in the middle of the desert? Verse 35, verse, chapter 35, verse 30. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and has filled him with the spirits of God, with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills. What kind of skills? To make artistic designs for work in gold, silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. Then it, verse 34, And he has given them both both him and Oholiab, son of Ahimsamak, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. And he has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. So two persons, only two, were chosen in Israel to be filled with the Spirit of God, whose main purpose was to give them all the knowledge and all the skills required for this complex operation. In a modern-day equivalent, God was giving them, Israel, the Skills Future program to upgrade the skills. And God's Spirit transformed Bezalel Oholiab from what? From brick slaves in Pakistan to fashion house designers in Paris. That's a kind of upgrade. Because they had worked with art, metal, wood, precious stones, garments, and then these two persons, they're also given the gift of teaching so they could impart to everyone else to do the construction. So at this juncture, it is important to take a pause and to note that while Israel was tasked to build a sacred space, they were given skills that what we would normally associate not necessarily with sacredness but with ordinary things. Because in our own wrong understanding, we think that the Holy Spirit will only give skills of teaching and preaching God's Word, or evangelism, or performing miracles, and for some of us, maybe playing instruments once a week at church. But here, we see that God's Spirit was giving them skills to do ordinary things, things from metalwork to embroidery. In fact, from a Singaporean perspective, these are the jobs that we rather outsource. If your children want to study embroidery, say, please, wake up. And but for God, as Moses, God's prophet, look at him. He was given none of these skills as far as recorded. He was only given the instructions, the blueprint. So he could not help in the construction. Probably because the people now could not do without Moses' instructions and neither could Moses do without their skills. They needed one another. And so when my firstborn came, I was busy helping my wife to take care of our baby daughter. Our parents were old, so they couldn't help much, and we didn't have a domestic helper. And then each time when I had to change diapers for my daughter, 
or to take her out for a walk with, to give my wife a break, I'll have less and less time to do church work. So initially, in my heart, I struggled really badly. And I felt torn inside my mind because I had to choose in my mind between doing church ministry, which I thought was more important, more sacred, and to choose that or to choose caring for my family. And this went on for some time, until the day I fully embraced the fact that changing diapers was also ministry. Because all life belongs to God, not just church life. And that went click in my brain, my heart calmed down. I struggled much less. I could actually enjoy changing holy diapers. No, I'm so thankful that I have time to spend with my baby daughter instead of outsourcing this away. And amazingly, God actually multiplied the time that I had to do His work in church so I could juggle. And soon I come to realize that anything that is done with dependence on God and with a love for others, that thing becomes holy work. Sacred work is simply doing ordinary things with God's love. So back to Israel's story, what was the outcome of the call for resources and manpower? 35 verse 29, all the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. And 36 verse 2, then Moses summoned Bezalel and Oholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and to do the work. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work in the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for the, doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Here we see the people are so willing, so willing to contribute the materials needed. And now they have more than enough to build a tabernacle. At the same time, the people received the skills from God and they were willing, they were willing to do the work day after day. And the willingness of their hearts resulted in them to obey God completely. Verse 39, verse, uh, chapter 39, verse 42, the Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. So this echoed the creation account again in Genesis because in Genesis, whatever God commanded, it was so. And here in Exodus, whatever God told Moses and Moses told the people, it was so. They built exactly as commanded, perfectly according to the instructions. And that perfect obedience led to being blessed by God. So the main criteria, friends, that made truly possible for them to obey God is this key ingredient, what we call willing hearts. Previously, they were very quick to abandon Moses and God and to build an idol to misrepresent God. Yet here, they now had willing hearts to obey God down to the very last detail. So how did the people change? Why did they have willing hearts? And to find the answer, you need to look at the structure of the book of Exodus. As mentioned, the instructions of the building of the tabernacle was found in 35 to 31, 25 to 31, and then the implementation was between 35 to 40. And in between these two portions was the key to unlock the change in the heart 
They click. Because in the middle of the sandwich, from chapter 32 to 34, was the incidence of the golden calf, intercession from Moses, and forgiveness from God. To summarize, allow me to use a modern wedding illustration. God was like the groom who had just said his marriage covenant vows with his bride Israel. Then he gave her ornaments, the wedding ring, gold and jewellery as wedding presents. And then the groom left the hotel room to make a phone call to confirm the honeymoon plans. And when he returned, he saw the bride already flirting with another man and giving her ornaments to that man. In his anger, the groom told the bride to take off her ornaments and he no longer wanted to bring her to live with him and he cancelled the honeymoon. In the story of Exodus, Israel was the bride and Moses pleaded with God. And God, being compassionate and gracious, as we saw last week, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgave Israel. He gave them a second chance to build the tabernacle where he could dwell with them again. And now given a second chance, Israel had a change in heart. In repentance, they could not stop giving the ornaments back to God to build the tabernacle. And with willing hearts, their hands and feet worked hard for the construction, exactly to the plans given to them. Willing hearts are only possible because they knew forgiveness from God and they knew God's gracious love. So if I take a step back, and compare this with what I've seen in Wang Seng in uh, Laos, I realized that there's a huge difference between the two communal building projects. See, the one that I saw in Laos, the Bible here said it's not possible. It's not possible because we could never build a sacred space on our own, because we could never reach heaven by ourselves, because of our sinfulness and our unfaithfulness, they made us unclean, unholy. Our sins weigh us down. We will be destroyed, even if we succeeded, if we could meet God face to face. Which is why in this account, the difference in this account then, is God did not wait for men to build a tabernacle for him. Instead, he gave them instruction to do so. And they were given new willing hearts to obey. And here, instead of building a sacred space to reach God, we see the space coming down from the mountain to the bottom. Because it's no longer by our human merit, not by works, but by grace in the forgiveness of God. And also later in the other books of the Bible, unfortunately, we saw that Israel's heart, the change, the willingness of the heart, was only temporary. And they did not manage to enter the promised land because they gave up. And then, so we look back and say, what does this all mean? In fact, all these points then to our desire for a true change of heart that's permanent, that only Jesus could bring. Because at the cross where Jesus died, he paid for our sins. He became the main and only reason that God could now look at us and consider us sinless. As a result, God can now dwell with us without destroying us. In other words, Jesus became the better tabernacle, the better, the new temple, the ultimate sacred space where man and God could enter and dwell together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. 
All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So I'm not sure how you feel today. Maybe you come to church with a heavy burden of sin. Maybe you didn't have a glorious marriage and quarrel again. Maybe you went back to your old vomit and you wanted to do your old sins again. Look to God at the cross. He has made this sacred space. Embrace that forgiveness that's given to you by grace and you can come back to Him again. Because that was His whole purpose, to reconcile us with Him through Christ. And now being reconciled with God, with our new willing hearts, we begin to live our lives no longer for ourselves, but for Christ who died for us, a new direction. And amazingly, this is the biggest miracle. We now become the extension of the sacred space of God. We become God's priests to bring the new creation wherever we live and work. We're like mini tabernacles from our homes to the ends of the earth. How do we know this? We catch a glimpse of this in Exodus. Where, you ask? You see, the priests in Exodus were dressed exactly in the same colours of the tabernacle. Talk about fashion sense, right? No, chapter 36, verse 8. All those who were skilled among the workers made a tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, with cherubim woven into them by expert hands. And then 39, verse 1. From the blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, they made woven garments for ministering in the sanctuary. They also made sacred garments for Aaron, as the Lord commanded Moses. What this means is, wherever the priests went throughout Israel, in their clothes, there are mini tabernacles travelling around, reminding them of God's presence. Similarly for us who are now in Christ, we are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We are the new tabernacles, the mini sacred spaces the new creation wherever God places us. Let me tell you a story. Louis Tan, he left school after O-levels. After working only for a few years, he got married. And then he wanted something, something spectacular to show his children when they grew up so that they could respect him. Unfortunately, he had little qualifications, but there's one thing he liked to do. He liked to eat, like all Singaporeans. So he decided to start a food business he went to Taiwan, he pitched his ideas to a Taiwanese cafe owner to start a branch of the Fengsheng Hao Cafe in Singapore. But to do so, he had to undergo one year of training in Taiwan. And during that year, he picked up the skills of cooking and running a business, but he also picked up something. He noticed that his big boss, Stephen Su, and his wife were both Christians. And interestingly, this boss never talked about money. Instead, he told his staff to help others, to care for them unconditionally. And in the mornings, the boss would open a day in the office by praying for the staff. And though at the point he wasn't a Christian, Lewis felt at peace. There was something strange about these people. He also noticed how the Christian faith changed the lives of people around him. And slowly, he himself became a Christian. A year passed, he returned to Singapore to start his business. And the night before the cafe was open, at 8.28pm, he received a notice that the fire safety certification in Singapore had not been approved. 
And that's on a Friday. And that means all the food that he bought for the weekend will have been thrown away. So, Louis called his boss in Taiwan. They mobilized people to pray, and they prayed. And amazingly, in half an hour later at 9 p.m., he got the approval to open the cafe. God was teaching him to depend on God. So now every morning in the cafe, Louis would open his business by praying for his staff. Being loved by God, he now every day chose to love people, choosing to encourage them and not criticizing them. And during the circuit breaker, instead of worrying about money and business, he set up a table outside the cafe and gave away fresh bread freely. And when they ran out of bread, they gave away instant noodles, black tea for pregnant women, and rice bowl for senior citizens. So why did he do so? Because Louis asked himself, I'm, I'm only in food business, how can I show God's love? And that's what he did. So previously, Louis only hoped to start a business, to be respectable. But today, his hope has changed. It's for that everyone who crosses his path will know God's love more. And now he has something really precious to give to his children, a testimony of God's love. So brothers and sisters, making breakfast food can be learned if you work hard. But when it's done with dependence on God's love, with a love for others, with a new and willing heart, making breakfast food becomes holy, sacred work is simply doing ordinary things the extraordinary way, powered by God's love. By living and working in this way, we are building a sacred space in a little corner of the universe, wherever God places you. And I was preparing this sermon, I could not help but think of the time I witnessed last year, around this time, when we were getting ready to run Christmas celebrations for the migrant workers, because they had mental issue problems, they were stuck in their dorms, worried about loss of income and worried for their families back home. But because of the different work schedule and swap test schedules then, they could only come to us in batches. So we had to run seven times the Christmas party over two weeks. I worked harder for the party than for my own wedding. So you can imagine the amount of logistics and manpower required to execute this. First, there was a party decor. Because we had to transform the boring second floor, don't, don't tell Pastor Chris, it's a boring second floor of Adam Road, <laughs> into a Christmas-themed restaurant. We called for help. I'm the last person to do this. Because the only thing I know is just copy and paste, but not the actual thing. So God raised a team led by Hui Min and Penpei. And they bought all the materials, went to SKP, Popular Bookstore, until they called Miss Populous. And then the team, and then we, we built all this. And bags and bags of the items arrived at the office. And after one full day of working, they decorated the place. Then there was the issue of the food. We had to order meals, drinks, dessert for each day, exactly to be fresh. I was so tired. Then one church member, Nikki, messaged me and asked me what I needed. I was so tired, I couldn't reply. I just say, Muruku. <laughs> it's a snack for the Indians. The next thing I knew, I saw an email in my inbox, Red Mart, the order of boxes and boxes of Morocco delivered to church. And the next time, we also needed volunteers to be hosts at a party, to help serve the food, to play table games. So I asked God, how on earth can we ever mobilize so many people for so many different dates? Yeah, it's like running mini, let's care, 
what do you call that? The carnival, but seven times. <laughs> and the answer came from heaven. Volunteers kept messaging us. God raised hundred, at least hundred persons to be hosts for the parties. More and more were coming each day. We had to turn them away because of the social distancing measures. We had to limit the number of people each day. And that's a photo for some of the helpers, yeah? And to organize the manpower, God gave me the most talented Chun. He's the staff, in case you don't know who he is, who has no hair, but he looks better than me, than I have with hair. He helped me set up a Google Sheet for manpower schedule, plan everything nicely, and he ran the parties on alternate days so I could take time off and a breather. Then we needed ideas for the program. And God raised a super creative team with Theophilus and Jasmine. Among us to be game masters, packing the entire three hours with party of fun and meaningful activities. So you know, people always say that, you know, when you look at your boss, right, the leaders, they'll be swimming like a graceful swan, but actually the entire team is paddling like crazy below him, right? For me, it's the other way around, you know? I was drowning and panicking and struggling in the water, and the team below me was smiling and trying to keep me afloat. And on the first day of the parties, then I went to my cubicle, I was so foolish. I sent everything to my cubicle, see? And I nearly fainted because it's completely covered with muruku, games, stationery, snacks, drinks, cutleries. Yeah, everything, including orange juice, pineapple juice. <laughs> I didn't know where to start. And then the Holy Spirit raised two persons to help with the gift of organization. Karen Liu and Jason Lim, they came to my help. They, two of them formed a team. They took all the resources upstairs to the second floor and organized everything down to the last plastic cup. It was like Marie Kondo came and visited my cubicle. But these two are way better than Marie Kondo. I explained to you why. Because Marie Kondo only know how to throw away the things that didn't bring her joy, right? But these two, my Bezalel and Oholiab, they put joy back into everything, down to the last plastic spoon. And then during one of the parties, a volunteer had to drive in the heavy rain, it's her sister in Christ, to pick up the biryani. She was all soaked when she came back. I felt so bad for her. And when she came back for the food, you know what she asked me? Can I do again tomorrow or not? So brothers and sisters, only God can raise 100 people with willing hearts. It's a miracle. And this is a photo of how the, food was, the room was transformed in the end. At the end of a party, one worker spoke with tears. He said, today, all my troubles went away for a few hours. And then we got feedback from the dorm operator. He said, his man told him this. First time, you know, they have treated with dignity as equals among Singaporeans. All we could do here is just to plan. But the actual doing and making friends are by you guys. It's not us. So what have I learned? I learned that when the body of Christ comes together, we, the mini tabernacles, can amplify our gifts. Our work is never meant for one person to do it alone. We need one another. But what makes it so difficult to work together is the condition of our hearts. If you are seeking for our own glory and not God's glory, you cannot work together. Or whether if you cannot forgive one another and you want to bear grudges, you cannot work together. Unless you are humble enough to depend on each other's gifts of the Holy Spirit. But when we present together ourselves as a living sacrifice, then God's sacred space descends on earth wherever we are. In our homes, 
vow-changing diapers, at our workplaces when we bless our customers, and in our churches where we work together. And this is how God uses His people with the Holy Spirit to recreate the entire cosmos, one willing heart at a time, one sacred space at a time, till we see Him again face to face where He will dwell with us forevermore. Let's go to God in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to come down from heaven to us, for we could never climb up to him. And for this grace and forgiveness for our sins, there's nothing we can do but to respond with a willing heart. So for the glory of yours and for the sake of your body, give us willing hearts to forgive, to work together, to depend on one another, and to give us gifts to serve you so that we can create sacred spaces wherever you plant us and where we can taste the goodness of your love, the presence of yours, faithfulness as well as your deep grace as you dwell among us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.